Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday. It is December 4th, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in. On today's program, we'll be continuing this week's conversation about inclusion in sport. Yesterday, I spoke with the president of APNA Hockey, an organization focused on identifying and growing the number of South Asian hockey players across the country by providing on-ice and off-ice training. He spoke about his experiences with racism in the sport while growing up, and today I'll be talking about what is being done in BC to weed out that behavior of the game in about 10 minutes, I'll be speaking with the CEO of Viasport, an organization that believes all British Columbians deserve equitable opportunities to develop and realize potential through sport as an athlete, coach, official, or volunteer. And in, in about 25 minutes, I'll be joined by BC's Minister of Tourism, Arts, and Culture. And a new study here shows that about 50% of the homeless population have suffered a traumatic brain injury. And I'll be speaking with the author of that study to end off today's show. But to get things started, I am joined in studio by Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Ken, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure, Jeff. So, uh, yeah, how did everything go here last week while I was away? Did everything, did, did Jason treat you all right? Oh, J Jason was gentle. Perfect. I'm glad to hear that. So, uh, yeah, post-council uh, discussion here like we usually have. Not a huge council meeting yesterday. Uh, polling station for the uh, referendum on a performing arts center were unveiled. Uh, Fifteen stations will be the same as the 2015 performing arts center referendum and the uh, last year's municipal election. So, I guess if people took part in either of those two votes, that they should, they, they should know where to go. Um, um, and there will be other voting options as well for those with accessibility issues and things along those lines. So I guess just now that these polling stations are out there, what, what is the next step in this uh, performing arts discussion? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think it just reiterates the point that uh, a referendum is just like a municipal election, and so uh, it will be very uh, similar in terms of the the timing and the and the uh, familiarity with the polls. I think we have to uh, do a little bit more work on Brocklehurst to uh, replace the Parkcrest pool, uh, polling station, but uh, I uh, think that the opportunities for both advance polling on the two Wednesday, Wednesdays prior to uh, the April 4th vote will give people a lot of opportunity and if for some reason they're unavailable there is the mail ballot that's always available to people just as it would be in a municipal election. Do you have any um, potential goals I guess that the city might be setting for a participation rate in this vote because it seems like uh, you know in the last the election or municipal election it, it might be a bit lower than, than hoped I suppose. You know uh, I, I was speculating about that yesterday uh, you know you see a fairly good turnout with the federal election not bad with the province and traditionally um, municipal elections have been dismal and uh, you know uh, Calumps is no different than other locations in, in uh, British Columbia and when you have only a referendum question, it can be even worse. So, uh, you know, my hope is that we would be above 30% uh, in Kamloops, and, and I think that would give us a good representation of the feelings of the public. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think with uh, both the federal and the provincial elections, you have party machines that generally drive those GOTV programs, and uh, they identify their supporters and virtually pester them until they get out to vote. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. Uh, with municipal elections, uh, particularly when we don't run slates in, in most uh, communities in British Columbia, kind of independent campaigns, and you don't see that same kind of uh, trek to the polls that you would hope to get. And, uh, you know, my hope is that uh, in Camels, people uh, look at this as an opportunity to change the uh, direction that the city is going and to add an amenity that, uh, you know, I believe we need. And 
and uh, that uh, they will go out and weigh in on that uh, if it's something that they're prepared to invest in. Well, hopefully both the uh, the pro art center groups and even the uh, the anti art center groups do uh, you know help get the, the the message out that people should be coming out to vote on this project. I think it's an important one for the community. Um, also at council yesterday, you guys looked at another uh, cannabis license this time on McGill Road. Um, now I wanted to ask a little bit about what uh, what kinds of impacts legal cannabis is having um, on the 2020 budget at this point in time because uh, you know there remains no revenue sharing agreement in place with the province that still hasn't been finalized and it looks like it won't be finalized at least until the spring at the earliest and and I think that might be a, a little bit optimistic at this point but what does this mean I guess for taxpayers in Kamloops uh, come 2020 do you any any idea what the impact of legal cannabis will have uh, here on the 2020 Kamloops budget yeah, it's not going to be significant. Uh, I think uh, what's happened is uh, the government has uh, grossly overestimated the amount of revenue that they would receive from the cannabis files, and uh, as a result, uh, they're not really opening up the wallet to share what little revenue there is with the municipalities in British Columbia. I've argued, uh, along with uh, council at the UBCM, uh, when we met with Carol James, that uh, irrespective of the amount of money, it's incumbent that you share that with those municipalities that are shouldering most of the work on these files. And uh, it's just logical to me that that would happen. I've had recent correspondence from the Minister of Finance indicating, as you said, that it would likely be the spring uh, before they would get to that. And I just find that patently unfair. I, I think uh, we are uh, the ones dealing with the licensing, the zoning issues, the policing issues, the uh, security checks, those kinds of things. And uh, we are charged the general taxpayer for that kind of service that's really focused on that particular retail sector. Have, uh, has the city decided what might happen with money that comes in from a revenue sharing agreement at this point, or is that still up for discussion? It would be part of our general revenue that we would use, and, and uh, that's the same as our general taxation. Okay. Um, perfect. Anything else to add on that file at this point, or is it sort of just a wait-and-see approach until, until that agreement is, is figured out? Well, I made the comment yesterday in council that uh, there was, uh, you know, three calls for public submissions. No one came forward, and the matter was dealt with in about two minutes, whereas the first one we dealt with a year ago, I think, took two and a half hours. So uh, what a difference a year makes oh, in yeah. terms of the normalization of the retail cannabis landscape. But uh, uh, nonetheless, there are five stores uh, licensed and operating in Kamloops and another 15 or so uh, in, in the queue to uh, get their licenses. And... Uh, now we're going to see the advent of edibles into that marketplace and see what kind of impact that has. So, you know, it, it hasn't uh, created any social problems that people were speculating. Uh, I was inquiring yesterday of our bylaws services in terms of smoking complaints, and they tend to still be about tobacco, not about cannabis. So, you know, we haven't seen that kind of, uh, you know, unease that uh, we had had uh, speculated by some. Yeah, a lot of, lot of uproar, but not, uh, not too much action actually falls. That. So that's probably a, a good news story from that perspective. Um, also, earlier this week, the uh, Community Protective Services Committee held a meeting. Uh, Canlips RCMP had reported property crime increased by about 3.5% in the first nine months of this year compared to the same time last year. Um, do you have any concerns when it comes to that particular increase, or was that sort of the general theme, I guess, of that meeting, was talking about sort of this small rise in property crimes? 
Well, you know, I, I have concern about all crime, but uh, I think uh, the issue specifically there was crimes of opportunity, which are largely fueled by the uh, necessity for people to find money for drugs. And, uh, you know, we have to realize as both homeowners and business owners in this community that it's not like it was 20 years ago. You can't leave your car unlocked. And if you have an L cove behind your business, you can expect to find, uh, you know, uh, all manner of uh, illegal activity going on in that. So we, we talked uh, at our meeting about the SEPDED uh, principles, that's crime prevention through environmental design, and I think that applies to uh, both residences as well as businesses, and so the RCMP, uh, through their outreach programs, are going to be talking to businesses and, and to neighborhoods about uh, those kinds of uh, physical kinds of barriers that you can put in place and additional kinds of security measures that we need to take, and uh, it's unfortunate, but it's a reality, and I think that uh, we need to be prepared for that in Kamloops just as we are in some of the larger cities. Yeah, and, and when you're talking about uh, crimes of opportunity and, and sort of the the impact it has on drug use, I guess there was uh, also a, a report that came in yesterday about the CAP team here in town picking up more than 20,000 needles last year, so uh, some good work being done on that front, but uh, definitely some work still to do to, to curb the amount of drug use that is happening here in Kamloops. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this, Ken. Um, construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline officially begins in Alberta. Uh, the CEO of Trans Mountain Corporation called it an important milestone in this project's construction and said that work should start in BC uh, next spring. I guess, uh, you know, what does this project mean for, for Kamloops? I mean, do you have any uh, thoughts on just sort of where the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline project is at this stage and, and when it might be coming to Kamloops? Well, you know, there's a number of impacts on Kamloops. Uh, first of all, uh, hopefully when it's done, we have a, a reduction in the amount of bitumen that's going to be transported by rail and that will uh, ease the pressures on some of our level crossings and, and certainly the threat of a, a fairly significant uh, derailment and spill into some of the pristine waterways in the interior. Uh, but beyond that, uh, Kamloopsians can expect to see uh, a large number of uh, pipeliners in Kamloops and uh, that uh, I understand from uh, the... Uh, Kinder Morgan or TMX people that uh, will happen late first quarter or early second quarter of next year and that that will have an impact on our city in terms of everything from traffic to how busy restaurants are and uh, we are one of the main construction reaches that's going to go from Little Fort down to Merritt and uh, so we expect to see a lot of uh, construction activity in Kamloops next year. Right on, Ken. Well, I think that uh, wraps up all I had for questions. So thanks so much for coming in, as always, and uh, hopefully we can do it again next week. My pleasure. All right. That was Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Coming up after the break, I have the CEO of Viasport coming on to discuss the work that's going on in B.C. to encourage more diversity and inclusion in sport. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday. Continuing the conversation of racism and bullying within sports and the game of hockey in particular, uh, I'm joined now by the CEO of Via Sport, Charlene Krepikavich. Charlene, thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me this morning, Jeff. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. So, so let me just start by getting your overall thoughts on sort of what the role is of, of Via Sport in this conversation. I mean, when we're talking about increasing participation levels among, uh, I guess mostly in this case, minorities, or even just increasing the comfort level that minorities might have in sports here in Canada in general, um, sort of what, what role does Via Sport play in that conversation? 
Yeah, no, well, thank you for shining a light on this very important uh, uh, issue and topic. Um, like uh, Minister Bear said the other day, uh, Via Sport is equally committed to inclusion and diversity in sport. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization um, created to grow amateur sport and steward government's investment in amateur sport. And so we work collaboratively with about 70 amateur sport organizations across the province. And our primary or, you know, I guess biggest ob objective is to create sport experiences that are welcoming, inclusive, and safe. So do you have any sort of, I guess, game plan as to how to go about doing that? I mean, is it training initiatives for those maybe in positions of power, like coaches, you know, diversity training, something that could be looked at as being now more or equally important as things like skill development when, when training, you know, those leaders of, of the game? I mean, what, what kind of initiatives, I guess, are we talking about? Yeah, no, very good question. So, um, you know, at Via Sport, we, like I mentioned, we work with uh, all the different amateur sport organizations uh, in the province. And, and we do this, um, you know, through sort of research and social innovation, through education, and through evaluation and monitoring. So on the research front, um, we try to understand, you know, what are the issues um, to, to improve access to sport for underserved populations. So, for example, for newcomers um, and uh, new arrivals to, to British Columbia, uh, we did some research a number of years ago where we piloted a new approach to working with settlement organizations to um, embed sport experiences into their community rather than expecting newcomers to know about us and come to you know the field we actually went to the to the settlement organizations to uh, introduce sport to their community and that pilot project was very very successful and we're now looking at scaling that you know in multiple communities um, across British Columbia oh. on the education on the education and training front, Jeff, um, we do um, a, a number of different workshops and programs, and I'll speak to one program that has been wildly successful. Uh, it's called All Youth Matter. Uh, we, again, we did some research uh, over a couple of years, and in January of this year, we launched uh, a program uh, for inclusion training uh, to sport, recreation, and education leaders, and we have um, introduced this training, this workshop, to over a 1,000 leaders across the province. And we've had calls from uh, different provinces to uh, to look at this incredible program because it's really about inclusion uh, and really um, sort of understanding you know what are the issues and and um, you know bringing uh, some some research and information to to the leaders to um, raise awareness around um, how to best approach this. Um, one of the things that when I was kind of doing some research on Via Sport and, and looking at the values that uh, that the organization sort of imposes, I mean, it lists five. It says, you know, trust, achievement, innovation, collaboration, and passion. But the first thing listed among that is is trust. Um, I guess, how, how important is it when you're talking about, uh, you know, being able to, to train the, both youth and, and those who are going to be in positions to, to teach those youth uh, when it comes to sport and be their sort of leaders? Um, you know, trust seems to be something that is, uh, you know, the most important or or maybe even the most lacking thing when we're talking about uh, some of these issues that have come up, when we're talking about, you know, the issues of bullying or racism within sport, obviously that, that comes with a lack of trust uh, for those who are in those positions of power. So um, can you just talk about how important it is to enshrine that value of trust among all people uh, in, in the province and then particularly when we're talking about sports? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, going back to that goal of creating, uh, you know, welcoming, inclusive, and, and safe experiences, um, you know, uh, tr- trust is, is very important um, uh, to families, to parents, uh, to anybody who is participating in, in sport. And so uh, we uh, administer um, the coaching program across the province, and we work with um, the uh, Coaching Association of Canada to deliver uh, hundreds of workshops uh, and training programs to coaches to uh, increase their knowledge uh, and understanding of these important issues and to, um, uh, you know, raise awareness around, um, you know, how to create this, this cultural change. So uh, trust is very important. Um, and, you know, your, your listeners and, and anybody who's participated in sport really understands that, you know, sport matters. Um, you know, it delivers uh, physical and mental health. You know, it improves education and learning outcomes. It creates jobs and delivers economic impact through, you know, all the different tournaments that we host. And it creates leaders and, and engaged communities. And, and so in the amateur sport um, sector uh, system where we work is that, you know, we are continually committed to uh, education, training, awareness, and, you know, uh, to, to boost uh, our knowledge and understanding of the issues um, that are, are faced in the community. Uh, Charlene, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, so the reason this whole conversation has sort of come up is, is you know, with what's going on in the NHL here over the last couple of weeks uh, and just some of the stories that are coming out amongst coaches in the game. Uh, do you think that this these kinds of conversations that are happening or these incidents that are being brought forward um, actually helps sort of the work that Via Sport is doing to, to be able to instill some of these values? I mean, as terrible as it is that these stories are coming out, the fact that this conversation is now being had has to be seen as a positive. Well, I think any time that you can have an opportunity to shine a light on uh, an important topic, it's, you know, it raises the consciousness, uh, uh, you know, around the need for these conversations. Uh, and certainly as a sector, um, you know, in collaboration with our government, um, you know, we are committed to creating these experiences that are welcoming, inclusive, and safe. And um, at Via Sport, as the, you know, the agency that helps uh, steward government's investment in sport, uh, this, this is, you know, one of our top priorities. Well, Charlene, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me on the program this morning. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I think, a, v- a very important conversation, and I think this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg here that we're going to uh, be talking about for quite some time. So thanks so much for doing Bye. this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Bye for now. Bye-bye. That was the CEO of Via Sport, Charlene Krepikavich. Uh, coming up after the break, I'm going to be continuing that conversation as I will be speaking with BC's Minister of Tourism, Arts, and Culture. So uh, stick around for that. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday. Uh, this week I have been discussing the issue of inclusiveness in sport and, and that conversation that is taking place within hockey and at the NHL level has raised a number of questions about what is being done to encourage people to try hockey at the grassroots level as, as well as other sports. Um, what role does the government have when it comes to this issue? Well, here to talk a little bit about that is British Columbia's Minister of Tourism, Arts and Culture, Lisa Bear. Minister, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. So let me just start, I guess, with that kind of basic question. I guess, what is the role of the provincial government here? I mean, do you believe that the province has some responsibility when it comes to uh, encouraging people to be inclusive when it comes to something such as, you know, sports and athletics? 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, government should should definitely be taking a leadership role. We want to make it very clear that any kind of harassment and abuse is, is completely unacceptable. And unfortunately, we are seeing an increase uh, of these kind of incidents here across the province and really all across the world. So to that end, our, our as part of our government's work to combat racism, uh, this past summer, Parliamentary Secretary Ravi Kalan uh, toured all across the province and met with community organizations and leaders. And he listened as people shared their experience of racism and what was actually happening in their communities. Have, have you been hearing a lot of stories about, uh, you know, concerns when it comes to inclusion in sport? Um, I'm just curious if, if, you know, from your ministry's perspective, I mean, you have sort of a, a bit of an umbrella over oversight over, over the issue of sport. I mean, have you been hearing a lot of spor- stories? I mean, uh, in BC, I know it's a very diverse province, and, and I'm just curious if, if you've been hearing anything from sort of that grassroots level. Yeah, I mean, we've all heard of instances where kids aren't feeling included or they aren't feeling safe. And um, that's why our government is working at increasing participation uh, for children who are often underrepresented in sports. Um, this can this can include children from lower-income families, Indigenous children, um, you know, our children and youth who have disabilities, uh, girls who are underrepresented in sport, and, and newcomers to Canada. So we um, last uh, earlier this year announced $2.5 million investment into kids' sport so that more than 1,000 kids from all across the province will get that chance to reach their present uh, potential and get that chance to actually play sport. Um, so that was an exciting opportunity opportunity to to really ensure that we're being more inclusive. Um, so, given that, I mean, it, it's obviously good that you're you're having some funding available to try and encourage people who maybe can't afford to do sports or, or, or to uh, to take part in some of these activities. You know, provide them that opportunity that they might not otherwise have. Um, but is there anything that you can do as a provincial oversight body to to, um, to to promote the idea of inclusion? And when we're talking about inclusion, I mean, like almost, I guess, non-white people to to be involved in this kind of thing. I mean, it's kind of hard, I guess, as a directive to say, uh, you know, when, when you're trying to promote different groups to take up a sport to say, you know, make sure they're not a white person or whatever the case may be. I mean, you talked about indigenous uh, representation as well off the top there. I mean, is there anything that you can do, um, you know, as a minister to, to encourage those different ethnicities to get involved? Absolutely. And this is something I feel very, very strongly about. I I mean, I have a four-year-old daughter, and I want to be able, uh, you know, I want to make sure that she's able to participate fully in a safe, inclusive sport environment, and I want that for all children uh, and and youth here across BC. And so um, earlier this year, I directed uh, Via Sport to develop a plan to ensure that we're uh, ensuring a safe and inclusive sport environment that's free from harassment and abuse and that's fully inclusive uh, for all children. And um, we've been working with uh, Via Sport to develop what we're calling a safe sport program for here in BC, which is going to be coming out uh, in the coming months. And Jeff, I'd love to come back on your program um, as soon as we release that and and talk about more about what those concrete uh, uh, action plans are. But in the meantime, we're, uh, as that's being developed and being 
released. Um, you know, we're taking steps to make sure that we're leaders here in BC. I want our program to be um, a flagship program. I want to ensure that we're leaders, and I want to ensure that our, our kids are being taken care of. Yeah, and uh, uh, definitely we'll take you up on that to have you back on once this program is up and yeah. running. Um, I guess just also, I mean, when we're talking about the idea of inclusion in sport, I think uh, one of the things that we're seeing as a result of the conversation that's happening in, in hockey and at the NHL level right now is the concerns that are, are being addressed or being discussed um, seem to revolve around coaching and, and some of those those leaders within the, these locker rooms, if you will, um, you know, the ones who are, are in control of, of uh, those that are participating within the sport. I mean, these are these are role models and idols for, for kids who are looking to get mm-hmm. into these sports. I mean, these are the people that, that sort of um, uh, paint the picture of what the sport is all about. So uh, I guess from that perspective, I guess, who, who do you think is really um, at needs to be uh, leaders in this? Because, you know, we can encourage kids to get involved, but that doesn't necessarily address the issue that, that we're talking about here. It's more about uh, making sure the leaders of these particular sports are, are welcoming and are, uh, you know, able to, to see past a, a skin color or, or a gender or whatever the case may be. So uh, from that perspective, I guess, what, what do you feel is sort of the, the first step to maybe changing some of the perspective or some of the, the, uh, the messages that are being perceived out there? Is it starting with those coaches or with, uh, you know, the, the, the adults and the parents that are, uh, you know, helping teach the kids in, in this case? Oh, thank you, Jeff. This is such a great question, and, and I couldn't agree with you more. I, what really it boils down to is that we all need to be leaders. We all need to be responsible. That includes the coaches, that includes the parents, that includes government. Um, you know, when when we're looking at, uh, when we are working on this safe sport plan here in BC, we're working with nearly 200 stakeholders uh, to learn about the actions they're already taking um, and, and, and to, to actually strengthen that and develop um, you know, better plans together. And so when we look at uh, movements like the Responsible Coaching Pledge, we know we have these amazing leaders all across the province who take this very, very seriously, who want to ensure uh, that our kids are, are participating in safe, inclusive sport, uh, to, to ensure that our kids you know, don't have to suffer from any abuse uh, or, or harassment. And so I think um, we're well underway here in the province. I, I think we have some amazing leadership that's already happening, um, uh, especially at the provincial sport organization level. And and in fact, on, on, on that, um, I was able to announce earlier uh, today that our ministry has been working with Via Sport and Sport BC to create a new uh, diversity award uh, to celebrate our accomplishments um, in, in inclusion and uh, diversity across the province. Uh, we have some amazing provincial sport organizations and local organizations who are doing fantastic work. Right on. Well, it's good to hear that uh, you know some work is being undertaken to encourage uh, diversity. I think that's better for for all sports, and, and in particular when we're talking about this conversation. I mean, we're we're, we're Canadians, and we uh, pride our country on being a diverse country. And uh, when we're talking about our national sport like hockey, it's important I think that that be diverse as well, and and not just hockey, but all sport and and, and any activity that kids are wanting to get involved with. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure to be here, and I really look forward to talking again in the future uh, on what we're uh, doing here in the province. Perfect. I'm going to hold you to it.
That was British Columbia's Minister of Tourism, Arts and Culture, Lisa Baer. So as these stories in the NHL come to light and this issue gets more and more attention, I just think this is, you know, better for the sport. It's better for hockey. The more people play, the more different backgrounds that take it up, the better the sport will be as a result. And I spoke yesterday with the president of APNA Hockey, which is an Alberta-based organization that's focused on identifying and growing the number of South Asian hockey players across Canada by providing on and off ice training. Uh, Lally Tour spoke a little bit about his experience with racism growing up in hockey and i just wanted to revisit that for a brief moment here i would usually be the only south asian kid on my team let alone the whole league um i think i played against one south asian kid uh when i was about eight or ten at a all-star tournament in vancouver um you didn't see too much um ethnicities playing the game of hockey especially at the minor hockey level in the prairies um that posed a lot of challenges um i had some parents that would honestly just talk to me and my dad and let me know what would happen, you know, in the future. Because I was playing with the top, uh, top 1992 group, you know, from Alberta. Um, they would tell me that, you know, this is just the start of the racism, the bigotry, um, the, the, the animosity, right? So, I mean, they prepared me as much as they could. But in the end, Jeff, I, I, I didn't like hockey, right? I hated the politics. Um, it, it really left a sour taste in my mouth. And that's why I started the, the whole Up Hockey Network. Yeah, and Lally, I mean, what, what, where was this coming from? I mean, when you're talking about dealing with instances of racism, was it, you know, players on your team? Was it opposing players? Was it coaches? Was it refs? Was it everything? I mean, wh- yeah. just, just how yeah. deep was this rooted? Yeah. It was, uh, I feel that on, on, my, on the teams that I played for, it was very systematic. Because, I mean, I would, uh, I wouldn't be dealing with, you know, like, obviously, like, opposing teams would call me Paki, a terrorist. Um, they call me certain uh, other rhetoric. Uh, parents on the other team would call me that as well. But I felt that, you know, at certain, like, on my own team, some parents didn't like me, right? You know, if I was scoring more goals or getting more ice time, um, I felt in my bottom AAA year, I was, I think, bottom AAA is a big year in uh, Alberta because that's your WHL draft. Mm-hmm. And I think I averaged, I think, three or four minutes a game the whole year. And I felt so isolated, so so hindered, right? I mean, there's different forms of racism, right? Um, and it, it took a toll on my mental health as a kid growing up. Um, I mean, I still wake up thinking, you know, like, what, what could have happened if I would have got, you know, a fair shot at it? I don't think these attitudes that Lally is speaking of here are anywhere close to being eliminated. Now, uh, you know, as much as this is going to be a bit of a, a Me Too movement in the sport, I can only imagine that, you know, Mike Babcock, Bill Peters, stories like those are, are far more common than we realize, and I expect more and more of these types of stories to come to life. Um, but, uh, you know, do remember that these stories, you know, they're told, and people are chastised for their past actions, but this is about moving forward and making the future better, more inclusive, more welcoming, and that's why these conversations are important, and I hope this message doesn't get lost as uh, you know that conversation progresses and and you know we look back and and maybe um, you, you know chastise the past but this is all about moving forward and coming up with a better future so that's uh that's the whole point of this conversation uh, but we will be switching gears here uh, after the break a new study that says that 50 percent of the homeless population have suffered a traumatic brain injury I will talk with the author of that study after this <laughs> Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show. Today is Wednesday, December the 4th, and of course, thanks so much for tuning in. 
One in every two people who are homeless may have experienced a traumatic brain injury. That's according to a new research study out of the University of British Columbia. It was published this week and takes a look at dozens of other studies, which include data about people who are homeless uh, you know, over the decades. And here to discuss this now is the author of that study. He's a PhD student at the University of British Columbia in the psychiatry department. Here is Jacob Stubbs. Jacob, thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, just maybe first and foremost, I kind of want to know, what, what was it about uh, this study? You know, what, what drew you to this information about the homeless population, and why did you want to learn more about them? Well, I mean, for our entire team, it's it's um, started a few years ago, not with me at all. Um, with the hotel study in downtown Vancouver, it's led by uh, the former department head of psychiatry, Dr. Bill Honer. Um, and my former supervisor a few years ago was working with this study, and he's a neurologist. So he was looking at MRI scans of participants in this study um, and was noticing some pretty significant evidence of trauma, which led the entire team to start looking into it further. So we sort of thought that the best first step here um, and the component that I led, which was this study, was to do what's called a systematic review at meta-analysis, which, like you said, synthesizes the results um, from all previous studies on this topic to sort of understand where the scientific knowledge is on this uh, topic. Yeah, so when you were compiling this information, I mean, you looked at some studies that have been published uh, between 95 and 2018, I believe. Um, some, some other countries were involved when, when you were looking at this data, so Australia, Canada, Japan, uh, South Korea, the UK, and, and the States. Um, so when you, when you kind of looked across these different countries, I mean, did you notice any differences in the data that uh, each country was able to um, uh, put forward, or, you know, was there any sort of similarities, or, or I mean, was Canada different than any of these places? That's a great question and one we've fielded a few times now, but unfortunately I don't have a good answer for you. There were just too few studies to be able to look sort of country by country. So while we um, noted that the studies were from individual countries, we weren't actually able to really robustly look at any country-specific differences. Okay, that's fair enough. So um, I guess why did, uh, or what do you think can be done now with this data? I mean, why do, why do you think it was important to find out, uh, you know, and just in terms of its use, um, finding out that about 50% of the homeless population has suffered some form of traumatic brain injury. Uh, what, what do you think can be done with this information now that it's available? Well, we, we found more than just the 50% number, too. Just for a little bit of extra context, sure. we also found that, perhaps more strikingly to me, that about one in four had a history of traumatic brain injury or TBI that was considered to be moderate or severe. Um, and also that TBI is broadly associated with poor health and functioning. So as for the implications, um, to me, the first step here in addressing any problem, essentially, is recognizing there is one, which is what we did here. Um, but I think there's implications for two groups. One is healthcare workers, um, where we hope they will be able to have an increased awareness for the burden of TBI in this population. Um, identifying TBI or problems that stem from brain injury may help um, facilitate more targeted care and hopefully better outcomes. But second, there's a real need for better research on this topic um, to show, uh, to better understand, I guess, how the health of these individuals is affected by TBI but also what can be done in response. Did you, 
Notice anything in terms of uh, maybe themes of how these brain injuries were occurring amongst people? I don't know if you if you dug very deep in sort of uh, you know what what the result or, or sort of what caused these brain injuries to occur. Uh, but I'm just curious if you know a general person, a general person, a person from the general public was a uh, suffered a, a traumatic brain injury. I mean, would they have gotten it potentially in a different way, or more likely to get it in a different way than someone of the homeless population? That's an excellent question, Jeff, and one thing that we did look at specifically. So for context, in the general population, the most common, what we call mechanism of injury is sports, falls, car accidents, that sort of thing. Um, what we show in this study is across all studies that have looked at mechanisms of injury in the homeless or marginally housed population, by far the most common mechanism of injury is assault. And when we look further to differences in sex, for women especially, this um, oftentimes occurs in the context of intimate partner violence. So do you think, uh, there's probably no way to really answer this question, but do you think this, this kind of stuff was happening, I guess, prior to them being on the street? That's another thing that we tried to look at. So since this was a review, um, we're sort of limited by what studies um, have been previously done on this topic. So a lot of things were just associations. So we couldn't actually tell what caused what. But for a few, that we were actually able to do so. So we reviewed a few studies that were prospective, which means they followed people over time, generally a period of about a year. Um, and one of the more notable things that we found is that traumatic brain injury is actually seems to be a risk factor for becoming homeless over a given year. But also conversely, that homelessness itself is a risk factor for sustaining more TBI. So knowing that, I think it's starting to make me and our team think that TBI may actually represent a bit of a barrier to exiting homelessness or exiting an unstable housing situation. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, definitely knowing or being aware of, of sort of the symptoms and concerns or, or uh, you know, signs that someone might be suffering from a, from a traumatic brain injury and, and being able to diagnose it properly and then being able to care for it properly are, are important steps, I think, to take away from this study. I guess, what, what's next for you as a result of this? Now that you have this information, is there, is there anywhere that you want to take this or, or is this it for you? Well, our, I'm a PhD student with a much broader team. Like mm -hmm. I said at the, off the top, uh, the hotel study is a study that's been going since 2008 in the downtown Eastside neighborhood of Vancouver that has followed people with monthly or yearly assessments of health. And our team, um, of which, again, I'm just a component, is um, specifically now focused on TBI. And um, by continuing this study, we will be able to have data before the injury, we'll be able to track when they get an injury, and then we'll be able to have data after the injury. So this is one of the most powerful ways that we can um, look at answering some of the questions that remain unknown on this topic, and hopefully it will lead to improved care in the end for these individuals. Well, Jacob, I think this is uh, some good information, and uh, it sounds like it's just the start, and, and, and a lot more in-depth information is going to be coming as a result. So thank you so much for uh, coming on my, my show here today. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and putting some of this information out there into the into the, the listeners' heads. I think it's important to know, and, and uh, yeah, hopefully we can take this a, a little bit further in the future. Thanks so much, Jacob. Thanks, Jeff. All right, that was Jacob Stubbs, a PhD student at UBC in the psychiatry department and the uh, author of a study here on brain injuries amongst the homeless population. So, yeah, definitely some important information, I think. One in every two homeless people is likely to have suffered some form of traumatic brain injury, and the most likely cause of it was some form of physical assault. So uh, some, some, I guess, disturbing information, if you will, but... 
I can't say I'm overly surprised. We know that there's a, a number of mental health issues uh, that always come up when we're talking about uh, the, the homeless population and those who are less fortunate and, and concerns around uh, you know what, what their mental health state is. And I think knowing that uh, a traumatic brain injury could be a cause for some of those issues, I think is important uh, you know, for, for like, he had, like Jacob had said, uh, the, those who are working to diagnose these issues and try to help people uh, find a better life and get off the streets and, and get into a home. Um, yeah, I think this is a step in the right direction. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, more can be done with the study moving forward, and, and we can take some steps to help end homelessness, a uh, very, very broad and, and significant issue that we deal with here in Canada and, and really all over the world. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.